Hi, I'm Penny. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on Sunday, October 9, 1977 in Honolulu, Hawaii. And since that time, I have neither used nor abused alcohol or any other substance that allows me to take a trip without leaving my chair. And last October, I celebrated 20 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My home group is the Saturday morning principal studies group in San Ramon, California. We're a steps and traditions meeting. We study the steps one at a time using the big book, and we study the traditions one at a time using the 12 and 12. We have 40 chairs in our room, and um, when we study the steps, all of those chairs are filled. And when we study the traditions, all of those chairs are filled, and we have people sitting on the floor to share about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I believe that that happens in my home group because we talk about how they apply to us before we can apply them to the group. It's an incredible meeting. It meets on Saturday mornings at 8.15. And if any of you are ever out in California in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, please look us up. We'd love to have you. Please don't all come at once. Um, we do have a meeting about this size once a month, but um, not my home group. <laughs> Um, I have a sponsor, and my sponsor is Peg M. of Bellevue, Nebraska. I believe that Peg has spoken here. Um, and Peg is, uh, has been my sponsor for a couple years now. And uh, what I love about her is that she's more active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous than I am, and that she's louder than my head. And, uh, and I just spoke with her this afternoon, and, and she sends her greetings to you. I... Um, the four things that I just told you are the four most important things that I may need to hear this evening, that I'm an alcoholic and that I know that, that I have a sobriety date and that I know what it is, that I have a home group and I know what it is, and that I have a sponsor and I know who she is and I talk to her on a regular basis. And um, one of my sister sponsees is here this evening and it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. I, um, I want to thank... Katie for uh, calling and inviting me to be here this weekend. Um, this is this is just a beautiful area. I, I'm, I'm sure that y'all must know just just how gorgeous it is here. Um, but it's just it's such a treat to be here. It's my first trip to Nashville, and um, but I've always used y'all, and it's just it's just nice to be someplace where other people use it, and know what it means. Um, you know, when I was in, well, I lived in Hawaii for a while, that's where I got sober, and when I said y'all in Hawaii, they weren't quite sure what I was talking about. Um, so I, I'm real, and I was up in, um, I was up in Toronto, um, earlier this year, and they end every sentence with an S at the end. So I was trying to figure out if, if I could add S to the end of y'all. <laughs> Came up with y'all come back, S. <laughs> Uh, but I'm I'm really grateful to be here. I'm, I'm grateful to Katie and to the committee and whoever else had a part in in um, allowing me to be here this this weekend and and be met us at the airport eventually. Be met us at the airport. <laughs> he was there on time. We were there on time. We just missed each other, but we met up and and we got here. And she's been great. She is just really wonderful. And I really appreciate having such a wonderful hostess. She's been staying in touch with me by phone and. And um, it's just been a real treat to, to get to know her by phone and, and then to get to meet her personally. And, and um, there's another friend of mine here this evening that I've known 
by email for 10 years, and tonight is the first time we've met face-to-face. And we've known each other through um, through AA before there was an internet. And um, and we've been involved in AA meetings online for 10 years, and, and I got to meet Marge tonight. And so it's real special to be here, really special to be here. And, and you know, I didn't have things like that when I was... Um, when I was out there. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. I, I grew up in a, in a, I guess it was a normal family. It was the only family I knew, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. If there was anything dysfunctional about it, it was me. I, um, I grew up and, and, um, when I was in high school, I, I was, I was active in sports. I was active in a lot of things. And, um, you know, Clancy talks about the disease of perception and, and what I know today is that if you sat down and looked at my yearbook and you looked at all the things I was active in in school, you'd think I was pretty active and I was pretty popular. And that might be your perception. And my perception was that I didn't fit in anywhere and I had to keep trying to find places to fit in. And uh, and I didn't fit in with those kids. I didn't fit in with, I tried the literary magazine and I tried the school paper and I tried the yearbook and I tried the volleyball team and the and the basketball team and the two swim teams and and I didn't fit into any of those places and uh, so what I did was I isolated and um, and I turned inside and I hid out a lot um, because I knew that that if you got to know what I was really like you wouldn't like me and that's what um, that's what I brought to the disease of alcoholism I um. I graduated from high school, went to my senior prom, and got engaged at my senior prom. Broke the engagement five times in the next year. Maybe should have told me something. Um, when he gave me the ring back the last time, he said that if I gave him the ring back one more time, he was going to walk out of my life and I'd never see him again. And I was 18 years old, and I'm from this small town in the Midwest, and um, I couldn't be self-supporting to my own contributions. And... Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to take care of myself. It was just the lessons, lessons I'd never learned. I had no concept of how to exist in the world around me. And so I told him to set a date. We were married a month after my 19th birthday. And we went to New York on our honeymoon. And the drinking age in New York was 18. And so we got to New York and we went to this nice cocktail lounge. It wasn't a bar, it was a cocktail lounge. Nice booth with red leather and dark and smoky and Kind of smoky like it is in here. <laughs> and, um, and I ordered a drink. And I have to tell you, I don't know what my first drink was. I, it was probably in a stem glass because I wanted to be able to hold it right and have the little pinky out. I'd always been a fan of the movies of the 30s and 40s. Carol Lombard and, uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And, and the, the way they looked when they drank in those movies. Remember how they looked in those movies? They held that drink, and they usually had a cigarette in the other hand. They posed, you know. That's how I wanted to look. And I took a sip of that drink that night, and I looked like, I felt like they looked. You know, it was magic. Now, the next morning, when I'm taking my guts out in the toilet, I don't think I thought of Lee Remick or, or Piper Laurie in the days of wine and roses. Um, but it was magic for me, and I, and I chased that magic for a long time. I, um... My husband and I came home from our honeymoon, and we worked together. We'd go to work, and we'd come home, and on the way home, we'd stop, and he'd pick up a six-pack of beer, a little party store on the way home, and we'd go home, and he'd drink the beer, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. 
And when a six-pack didn't work for him anymore, he went to two six-packs, and we'd come home, and he'd drink the beer, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And when he got the three six-packs of beer, I knew my marriage wasn't working, and that I needed to do something to save my marriage, and that I could either have a baby, or I could uh, drink with my husband. And I'm grateful that I did not choose to bring a child into what was to be the hell of my life. Um, I chose alcohol. And I didn't like beer, but the only thing you could buy at this little party store was beer or wine. So I bought wine. And um, I come from um, I come from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And I live there now, and I live, there's some beautiful vineyards. I work out in the Livermore Valley, and there's some beautiful wineries and wonderful vineyards in our area. I'm told they're wonderful vineyards. And we're not far from the Napa Valley where there's some very nice wine. And um, I would love to stand here and tell you that I drank those very nice fine wines. I drank Ripple. <laughs> Ripple ain't never seen a grape. <laughs> I know that I know that my friend Claire S. spoke here not too long ago, and um, Claire is uh, I love Claire, and I love that she describes herself as a wineette. You know, Claire drank Ripple. Claire drank Ripple, and she got sober just a few years before I did. And I have a friend, Cheryl, up in uh, Portland, Oregon, and she drank Ripple, and she got sober just a couple years before I did. And I drank Ripple, and then I got sober, and then Ripple went out of business. <laughs> Coincidence, we think not. <laughs> um, I didn't particularly like Ripple, but, you know, Ripple took me where I needed to go. And Ripple used to come in different flavors. Now, it didn't come in flavors like Jim Kendall and Chardonnay. It came in, like, Raspberry Raz or Plum Passion or Strawberry something or other. And um, I would buy a bottle. Each, each flavor had a different color label. And I would buy a bottle of each different color label, and I would go home, and I'd open them up, and I'd pour them into this big tub I had, and I'd mix them together, and then I'd pour them back in the bottle, and I had my own private label Rainbow Ripple. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's where my drinking started. Where my drinking took me was to um, drinking in skid row bars and coming to behind dumpster dumpsters and drinking warm beer with cigarette butts in it. I, um, I didn't have a pretty story and I wasn't a pretty drunk. I was a mean drunk. I was an angry drunk. I was an arrogant drunk and a self-righteous drunk. Um, I didn't drink in Skid Row bars because I lived on Skid Row. I drank in Skid Row bars because that was basically, as they describe in the big book, I was lower companions. They kept throwing me out of those nicer bars. Um, when I was when I was in those nicer bars and they were trying to throw me out, I would um, argue with the bouncer. Not necessarily a good choice. And I um, I was physically ejected from several bars and worked my way down to um, drinking on Skid Row. And, um, and doing the things that it was necessary for me to do to support my habit, drinking in those bars. And if you were a woman alcoholic that drank in bars and supported her habit doing that, you know how that made me feel. Um, you know what it did to me and to my self-esteem, of which I had very little when I, when I started this. Um, I knew what I would do to get the person that was buying your booze to buy mine. And I knew what you would do get the person that was buying my booze to buy yours. And um, it's not a story that I'm proud of, but it's the story I have, and it's the story that got me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I um I got married for I left my first husband when he threw me out the living room window for the second time. Um I'd gone back to him after the first time. Um and what I know today, because I've worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that he was not the only perpetrator of violence in that home. Again, I was a mean drunk. Um, and I, I left him, and I, I, I know that we don't name anyone else in this program an alcoholic, but if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, I was married to a duck. Um, I left that marriage, and I moved in with my sister, who might be a duck. And I lived with her for a while, and then I moved in with um, a roommate, and he's probably a duck. I, um, while I was living with her, I went out on a date one night. This guy kept calling me and asking me out, and, and I kept coming up with really bizarre excuses. And I really, you know, I, I thought back to the person that I was during those days, and I, I can't imagine why he wanted to go out with me. Um, and, but he kept calling me, and, and so I said I'd go out with him. And while we were out at dinner one evening, um, a friend of his walked up to the table, and this guy I was dating introduced me to this friend of his, and I liked his friend so much that I married him. Um, again, it was, um, I couldn't be self-supporting for my own contribution. Um, doing the things I was doing, I couldn't, I, I couldn't show up for work on a regular basis. Um, I couldn't sustain any kind of a relationship. Um, I was suicidal most of the time. I came to in places where I didn't know who I was, where I was, who I was with, how long I'd been there. Most of my story is a blackout, so it's mostly hearsay. Um, I tried to use that as an excuse one time for maybe not being an alcoholic because I thought that, you know, maybe if those people that told me what I did in my blackouts were lying to me, maybe I wasn't really an alcoholic. Don't try and use that with a sponsor. <laughs> they don't they don't agree with that logic. It made sense to me at the time. Um, and so I married my second husband, and uh, my marriage was on the rocks before we even set our vows. And it was on the rocks because of my drinking, um, because of the things I was doing. He seemed to think that if I was married to him, that I could show up at home from time to time. Um, and I thought that that was a lot to expect. Um, my boss seemed to think that I should show up for work if they were going to give me a paycheck. But it was a government job, so. <laughs> um, my husband decided that in order to save our marriage, we needed to move. And, um, and I used to use that as an excuse also when I first got here to identify out. I said I never did a geographic because it wasn't my decision to move. It was his decision to move. And he decided that we should move to Hawaii which um, was going to fix my drinking. And it did for a long time, about a week. Um, we we moved to Hawaii, and um, and it took me about that long to find a bar where I was comfortable. Um, that was the kind of bar that I liked, which was usually quite dark, um, usually a jukebox in the back, country music on the jukebox, sad country music. I had to have sad country music so that I could... You know, play the jukebox and find my drink. And, um, because see, if you do that, somebody's gonna come over and they're gonna say, oh dear, dear, it'll be okay. We can take care of it. Why don't we talk? And they'd buy my boots. And, um, that was my reasoning. And that was, that was what I did. And that was how I lived. Um, 
my husband, um, my marriage was, was going downhill and I was more and more frequently, um, self-destructive and, um, and one evening, one summer, one spring, um, my husband had fixed dinner. We were both home one evening and, uh, he had fixed dinner and, um, and we got in an argument. And he had opened a nice bottle of wine. Now, I know it was a nice bottle of wine because it had a cork in it. And I only drank wine with a cork in it when I needed the fiber. Um, I couldn't figure out corkscrews, so I pound the cork into the bottle. Um, but he'd opened this nice bottle of wine, and we got in this argument, and I picked up the bottle, and I chugged it. And then I picked up my plate and walked out of the room. And on the way out of the room, I tripped over a thread in the carpet or something big like that. And I fell face down in my plate of food. And um, my husband walked through and he looked at me and I said, don't say it. And here I am, face down in my food, being arrogant and self-righteous. And he said, say what? And I said that if I hadn't have had that drink, I chugged a bottle of wine, that I wouldn't have done this. And he said, if you hadn't of you wouldn't have. You're just an alcoholic. And he walked out. And he left me down. And you know, I've been called a lot of names. I've been called a lot of things in those bars where I was drinking. And when I came to, I was calling myself a lot of names. And other people referred to me with a lot of names. But nobody had used that word alcoholic. And I don't know why that cut so deep. Just right to my soul. And I thought, I'll show you. I'll show you I'm not an alcoholic. Michael Paul had been an alcoholic. He died of a wet brain in the state hospital. My grandfather had been an alcoholic. He died as a direct result of being intoxicated of an accident in the home. Michael John was an alcoholic. Michael Jerry was an alcoholic. Everybody on my mother's side of the family, except for my mom, was an alcoholic. And I knew I didn't want to be like that. I knew I didn't want people talking about me like they talked about my family members. And, and so I thought, well, I'll show you I'm not an alcoholic. I'll quit drinking. I'll quit drinking now while I'm young so that I can drink like normal people when I'm older. And so I quit drinking. And what I went through was withdrawal and detox. But I didn't know that because I didn't know anything about alcoholism. Uh, I thought I had the flu. Um, I was real sick for about a week. And I came out of it. And um, then what happened was I found I couldn't deal with reality because I didn't have that buffer. Alcohol had allowed me to survive in the world around me. It had allowed me to interact with the world. It had allowed me to stay alive. It had been what allowed me to survive. And I didn't know that until alcohol was out of me. And I didn't know that even then. I thought what was happening was that I was having a nervous breakdown. And I thought if I have a nervous breakdown, I have to have a good psychiatrist. Because if I don't have a good psychiatrist, they'll send me to a state hospital. And I'd worked in state hospitals. My uncle Paul had died in a state hospital. I knew I didn't want to go there. But if I had a good psychiatrist, I could go to a private hospital where I could maybe just rest. Just rest. That's what I need. I just needed to rest. Maybe work on some moccasins and ask prayer to do the Thorazine shuffle down to the day room to watch the soap. So I went to find a a psychiatrist and I found this guy and I went to see him and and, um, he asked why I was here and and I said I didn't like myself and he asked me what I didn't like and I said I don't like the way I look and I don't like the way I think and I don't like the things I do and 
I really don't like myself. She said, well, why don't we start with the way you look? Here's a prescription for some diet pills. And I left his office that afternoon, and I walked across the street to Long's Drugs, and I went in and I asked to speak to the pharmacist. And I explained to the pharmacist that there was a family emergency on the mainland, and could I maybe have all of my refills to take with me, because it's really hard to get refills on the mainland when the prescription's from Hawaii. And I left Long's Drugs that afternoon with a little white bag full of little brown bottles, full of little white pills with little white coffees on them. And... Um, and I went back a week later. I, you know, I took the pills whenever I thought I needed them. And went back a week later and went into the doctor and said, I don't think these pills are working very well for me. There's something wrong. The house is clean. The pool is clean. The pipes are clean. Everything's fine. But I don't think these pills are working. These pills just aren't working for me. Maybe there's something else you could give me because this isn't just doing the trick. This isn't going to be it. And he said, well, why don't you try these? And so he gave me another prescription. And, um, and I went to a different pharmacy and I asked to speak to the pharmacist. And, and I explained that there was this family emergency on the mainland and that it's really hard to get your prescription refilled and um, and could I maybe have all of my refills. And I walked out that day with a little white bag full of little brown bottles full of little orange pills. And and, um, and I still wasn't supporting my habit because now the insurance company has changed my habit. And, and I drank and, and used that summer and... Um, and I remember very little of it. I know that I tried a lot of the things that it talks about in chapter three of our big book. You know, it talks about taking a trip, not taking a trip. I, I took a trip back to visit my family on the mainland. I was gone for about six weeks and, and drank through most of it because I was visiting with old friends. And what else do you do with old friends? I met them at bars. I certainly didn't meet them at a coffee house. Um, it talks about um, taking more physical exercise. I joined a softball team. And um, and I was fast. <laughs> I could get there. I was just not really accurate once I got there. The softball team was part of a scuba club I belonged to, and, and scuba was scuba diving was really interesting on speed too. I mean, um, <laughs> what was the most amazing was when you watched coral grow. Um, but I was on this softball team and, and, um, and I wasn't very good and, and somehow, no thanks to me, we made it to the city playoffs and then, um, and we were in this playoff game and, um, it was a Sunday afternoon and I hadn't had anything to drink or use that day. And I don't know when I'd had my last drink or my last drug. I know that I hadn't had anything that day. And, um. It was a playoff game, and I was a shortstop, and I missed a real easy field. And my coach pulled me out of the game very unceremoniously, and he hurt my poor sensitive feelings. And so I questioned whether his mother knew who his father was. And then I got in my car, and I took off. And um, and I stormed out of uh, Tapiolani Park that Sunday afternoon, driving home along Diamond Head Road, and there used to be a little rock wall along Diamond Head Road. I don't know if it's still there. And um, I kept thinking as I was driving home that afternoon that if I could only get my car going fast enough to hit that little wall, that I could go over and I could go. And then everything would be taken care of. My husband wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. My family wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. All of those people on that softball team would sure be sorry when they heard 
to see I had anything to drink or use that day, and, and I was afraid that what would happen is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't hit the wall hard enough, because I was afraid that at the last minute I'd take my foot up off the accelerator, and, um, and I'd just wake up in a hospital somewhere, and, and I didn't want to be in pain, I was in pain, and I just couldn't do this anymore, and I, so I knew that if I had a drink, I could kill myself, and I went home to fix myself a drink, and, um, and today I, I believe that, um, that I came to a place where I could no longer resist God's grace working in my life, because, um, before I drank that drink, I walked to the back of the house, and I picked up the phone, and I called alcoholics anonymous. And I want to tell you that, um, that I had a moment of clarity, and that I knew that what my problem was, was, was alcohol, and that I needed to come in here and be happy, joyous, and free, and trudge the road of happy destiny. Um, and if that was my story, that's what I'd tell you, and then I'd sit down. Um, but it's not my story, and I have another 40 minutes. Um, a woman answered the phone, and I, I was afraid of women when I got here. Um, again, because I was a bar drinker. Um, I, um, I told her I'd like to know something about Alcoholics Anonymous for a friend of mine that I thought might have a problem. She said, maybe you'd like to go to a meeting. I said, oh, I don't think my friend would want to do that. No, I, she, she wouldn't be interested in Maybe you could just send me some literature. And I thought maybe I could do a correspondence course. She said, oh, we don't send out literature, but I can tell you where there's a meeting, and you can go to a meeting and pick up some literature and meet some women and get some phone numbers. Doesn't it sound like fun? <laughs> And I said, oh, I, my, my friend wouldn't want to do, maybe you could just tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous and then I'll tell my friend about Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, as many of you know, it's hard to talk about AA without talking about a higher power. She used the word God. I interrupted her and explained to her that I don't believe in God. She said, oh, does your friend believe in God? I let her tell me where there was a meeting, but I knew I wasn't going to go. And I really, I have no idea how I wound up there. I, I mean, I know that I got in the car and I drove, but I have no idea how I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just, um, it had to be, uh, I had to be in God's hands, and I just know that today. Um, and I got to my first meeting, and the woman on the phone had said, go up to the first woman you see and tell her you're newcomer. And um, I walked up to this meeting at the Atkinson Y, and there's a lanai outside, and there were a bunch of people standing outside drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and laughing and having a great time. None of them had big red A's on their foreheads or anything, you know. I didn't know, and, and I thought that was the party I should be at, but no, I have to go to an meeting. And uh, so I walked into this room, and, and it was huge, you know. It, in my memory, it was, like, bigger than this room, and it was, like, very small. <laughs> and there was no one in it, except in the very back where the coffee pots were. There was one person, a woman. So I walked over to her, and before I could say anything, I started crying. And she looked at me and says, oh, you're a newcomer. 
And Blanche took me outside and introduced me to the women of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the women of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me their phone numbers. And some of the men gave me their phone numbers, and the women took them away from me. Um, you know, the meeting started, and Alan Kay was the secretary, and he asked, uh, he knew, I mean, I'm sitting in the front row between Blanche and Connie so that I can't bolt out the door. I'm bawling my eyes out, and he says, do we have anyone that's at their very first meeting? This isn't to embarrass you, just so we can get to know you. And I raise my hand. He says, would you like to give us your name? And I cried for my whole first meeting. Then we stood up and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer, and I knew it was a cult. I knew that the next time I came, you were going to give me a tambourine and tell me which airport to report to. You know, I just, I'd have to sign over my worldly possessions and become a sunbeam for Jesus or something. I don't know. I just, um, it's probably not a good joke in this area, is it? <laughs> my higher power has a wonderful sense of humor. I hope yours does too. <laughs> I, um, I left that meeting that night, and I went home, and I didn't come back for a week. I um, I thought I'd join Sunday night AA, and I didn't drink that week. And I don't know how I didn't drink and I didn't use. Uh, you know, I, I was talking with some friends recently, and we were talking about what got us to our first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I've, what I know today is I know... I kind of understand how I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. What's really the miracle for me and the question for me is why I came back to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd seen you. And I knew that you had laughed in your But I hadn't heard a lot, you know. And, and I hadn't heard an answer. I mean, if you sit and you listen in some of our discussion meetings, you have to know that the newcomer is sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with not drinking whiskey? What does this have to do with the fact that my husband is having an affair with another woman, is going to leave me, I'm going to be a homeless on the street? What do these people talking about gratitude have to do with me not drinking to save my life and change my life? And I, and, and I don't know how I didn't drink in that next week, except that God did it. I just know today that I had a higher power that loved me. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not that I didn't believe in God, it's that I was hiding from God. I had been hiding from God for a long time when I got here. I had stood on the steps of a church drunk one Sunday morning, and I had sworn at God, and I had told him to get out of my life, because he had done it to me. And what I know today, through the steps in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that God was there with me all the time, and that's the only reason that I was allowed to walk in here in October of 77. But I didn't know that then. All of that stuff that I know today is because I've worked the steps and done the program, because I've done what you've told me to do. And so I left that meeting that Sunday night, and I came back a week later, and I didn't drink, and I didn't use in that week, and I walked into the room, and one person in the room, the coffee maker, Blanche, and I walked over to her, and she said, Penny, how are you doing? How many meetings did you go through this week? And I said, well, I was here on Sunday night. 
And she says, yeah, but during the week, how many meetings did you go to during the week? Sunday, I was here on Sunday night. And she walked over to the literature rack and she got a meeting schedule and she marked some things on it and took me outside and she took me over to Renee. And she said to Renee, I've marked the meetings where I'm going to meet Penny this week. Would you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? And Renee marked some things and then she took me over to Connie C. And she said, Blanche and I have marked the meetings where we'll meet Penny this week, or you marked the meetings where you'll meet Penny. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought it would be rude not to show up. And I was worried about my look good, and you were the only people that were asking me back anyway. When I tell that story today, it has much more meaning to me than it ever has before. Um, I left the islands when I had two and a half years of sobriety, and, and I've only been back once since I left. And um, so I lost track of a lot of people in my early sobriety. And a couple of years ago, two of those women came back into my life. And when I introduced myself this evening, I told you that uh, last October I celebrated 20 years. I want to tell you that last September, Lance celebrated 20 years of sobriety. And last August 8, Connie celebrated 20 years of sobriety. And the miracle of that for me is that those women took that action with 30 and 60 days of sobriety. That's the message that those people carried to me. That is the place where God chose to drop me, was around people that were given those kinds, giving me those kinds of, of support and that kind of love, even when I couldn't accept it. And the other thing it tells me today with 20 years of sobriety is that we're never, ever too young or too old in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to carry a message. That if you have a day sober, you have a message to carry. You might have a message to carry to the person walking in the door after you. You definitely have a message to carry to those of us that are ahead of you. Because what it tells me today is that it ain't got no better after. Alcohol is still kicking our butt. And if I want it, it's still out there waiting for me. Because I know that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, because my big book tells me that. What I know today is that alcohol is patient. And I know that because I've known people who have picked up drinks after 20, 28, 31 years of sobriety, and that they died, and that they died drunk. And uh, what those women did for me was they got me to meetings. And, you know, I want to, again, you know, I, I really, there's times when I tell my story when I, I'm not embarrassed by it, but it seems like, how could I have been so incredibly alcoholic? <laughs> how could I have, you know, this keen alcoholic mind that could figure it all out and it knew what was best for me? I come to the one place where I can say, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. And I say, oh, no, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Oh, no, I can do that. Um, I went to meetings, and um, I sat in these rooms with all you fine people. And I sat there, and I listened to you tell your, share your emotions and share your stories. And I looked at the outside of you, and I I really didn't believe you're always telling the truth. I mean, if you look around this room tonight, and, and you look at all how nice all of you look, you look at the person next to you, do they look like they've ever experienced tears? 
Must they have any worries? They're sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and they have a look of serenity about them. Even when we're in pain, when we're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I sat, so I didn't believe all of you. And I thought, see, if you knew what I was really like, you wouldn't let me stay here. I knew that if the women of Alcoholics Anonymous knew how I had supported my habit, you wouldn't be my friend. I knew if you knew what I'd done in those bars and people I drank with, the places I drank, you wouldn't let me stay. Because I knew where I'd come from and I knew what I'd done. And I couldn't tell you those things. Because I had no place else to go by this time. When I had two and a half years, uh, two and a half uh, months sober, I came home and I found a note from my husband that he was gone out of town on business. He'd be back in a week, so he needed to talk. And 20 years ago, he's not home yet. <laughs> He um, emptied out the savings account and overdrew the checking account and skipped town and took someone with him when he left. And um, and I didn't know he wasn't coming back. And then and I was evicted from that house and my car was repossessed and um, I was sued for half a million dollars. And and, uh, and I couldn't tell you guys. You know, I, I couldn't tell you. Here I was sober. Things were supposed to... I listened to you talk in meetings. Things got better when you got sober, you know. I heard somebody say in a meeting, if you're hurting, you're not doing it right. I thought, but I'm doing a lot of stuff wrong. Now, I don't know if that's what they said, because what I know today is I don't know what you said. I only know what I heard. And that's what I heard somebody say. What happened to me was I'm very grateful to say that I said that to someone else. And she said, honey, (laughs) that's not what it is. If you're hurting, we have a way to deal with it. I was scared. I sat in meetings and I listened to people come back from having a slip. And I sat there thinking, well, you know, maybe I could have one of those. I started thinking I needed to have one to qualify for Alcoholics Anonymous because I was hearing so many people talk about it. And I heard people talk about, well, when I had my first slip and when I had my last slip. And I started sitting there thinking, well, you know, because now I knew a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and I knew that some people go to detox. You know, they call the hotline and they Somebody goes out and does a 12-step call on them, and then they go to detox, and then from detox, they can go into treatment, and then from treatment, they can go into the halfway house. We had this women's halfway house in Hawaii called St. Francis Halfway House for Women, and the the graduates of St. Francis were called the Bells, and I was jealous because I wanted to be a bell. (laughs) So I thought, well, you know, if I drink again, if I have a slip, I'll just have a slip. And then I'll call the hotline and they'll send someone to get me and I'll go to detox and I'll go to treatment and I'll go to, and I can be a bell. And, um, what happened for me was I was, um, after a meeting one night, I was sitting at coffee and I was sitting across from a man named Harry L. And Harry had 13 years sober when I came in. And, um, and the words came out of my mouth when I have my shit. And I know I didn't mean to say it loud enough for Harry to hear because I scared Harry. Harry did. And Harry heard. And Harry reached across the table and he pulled me by my shirt and he pulled me halfway across the table and he says, When you what? When I had my slip. He said, Who the hell told you you were going to live? And in the next month, three people that had gotten sober with me decided that they needed to have a slip. And they died. And I know that you can't scare an alcoholic sober. Um, I know that what happened for me was the people of Alcoholics Anonymous just surrounded me. 
I got mad at a meeting one night, and I don't know, my poor sensitive feelings were hurt or something, and I decided I was going to go down to Waikiki and drink. And I'm storming out of the meeting, and, and a friend of mine's walking in, and, and she says, where are you headed? And I said, oh, I'm going to go down to Waikiki. I didn't say I'm going to go down to Waikiki and drink. I'm going down to Waikiki. She said, you know, I don't think I need a meeting tonight. Why don't, why don't we go for coffee? And CJ and I went for coffee, and he sat with me until after the bar closed. And the next morning, before the bar was opened, my phone rang, and he said, uh, you know, I want to go to that Saturday morning meeting. Why don't you pick me up and let's go to that Saturday morning meeting, and we'll go out for breakfast. And we went to that Saturday morning meeting, and I have no idea who he called. When I walked into that room, I was surrounded by the women of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I spent the whole day with them, and they didn't let me out of their sight until the bar closed. And I didn't know any of that until later. I didn't piece any of that together until later. But how I was surrounded, how angry I was, how I tried every way I could to do this deal wrong. And people and God just surrounded me and kept me in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, I haven't talked about a sponsor yet, have I? I had a sponsor. I got her as a service commitment. She, um, <laughs> you like that? She, uh, she was dying of a blood disease, and these people that were visiting her in the hospital were being transferred back to the mainland, so they needed someone to visit her and to read to her, and so they assigned her to me, and I thought she'd be a perfect sponsor because she was in a coma. <laughs> And I'd go to the hospital and visit her, and um, I'd read to her. And and then what I'd do is I'd talk to her. And um, what I did was I listened to you guys talk in meetings, and I took what I thought was the best of what I heard you say, and I talked to Peg about that, and talking about it just helped me to reason it through. And she was in a coma, so she wasn't arguing. And so I was basically, I, I was told that the ISM and alcoholism means I sponsor myself. <laughs> That's what I did. I, um, I had sat in a meeting and heard somebody say you could take the step cafeteria style. And I thought that sounded like a plan. Um, cause I didn't like most of the steps. This is my big book. It's not my talk. Um, I, um, I like to know what the book says when, when I'm sharing this. I, I didn't like most of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, I really, you know, I obviously was still pretty sick because I didn't think I was powerless or that my life was unmanageable. I really just thought I was here for a short time to do something about my drinking uh, until I got older and could drink like normal folk. And um, power in the second step was capitalized, and I didn't care what you said. I knew that meant God. And third step, you didn't even try to hide it. You just put it right there. But the fourth step, now the fourth step, you know, if you read it in the steps, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, it sounds a little, I don't know if I want to do that. But I had heard somebody talk about those three columns on page 65, and I looked at those three columns. Now I have to tell you, if you look at those three columns, the fourth step is a piece of cake. Because what does it ask you to do in those three columns? You have to make a grudge list who I'm resentful at. Now, I can do that. I can't. If you had to make a grudge list of who you're resentful at, can't you do that? Or when you came in, you could? Some of you can do it tonight, huh? 
And then what they did. Oh, I can tell you what every person on my grudge list did to me. And then what it affects. I can t- I have no problem coming up with what you did to me, how it affects me, and how you done me wrong. I mean, I can do that. Well, if you're doing the, the steps sponsoring yourself or with a sponsor in a coma, <laughs> you're probably not going to turn the page. And if you don't turn the page, you don't see this sentence in the first paragraph on page 66. Second line, page 66. To conclude that others were wronged was as far as most of us ever got. That's how far I got. I Then I took a trip, went home to visit my family and share the wonderful news that I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to meeting while I was there. And um, went went up to him and asked him if he'd hear my footsteps. And he said, oh, sure, why don't we go to my place? I don't think he'd ever heard a fifth step, and I don't think he'd ever done a fifth step, and I'm not sure he was sober when he heard my fifth step. He thought I did a great fifth step, and he said, now you go on to six and seven. Well, you know, six and seven, what are they? One page or one paragraph each in the book. How tough can that be? Okay, six and seven done. Eight, I don't have a problem with eight, because I have my list, and they're all people that have injured me. And if these people ever decide to practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, they'll make amends to me. And I'm waiting. And um, 10, 11, and 12 were, you know, maintenance steps. So how much work could it be? And that's how I worked the steps with a sponsor in a coma. And I'm here to tell you that if you try doing that, um, my experience has been that at 18 months of sobriety, I was suicidal. I, um, I couldn't stand my life. Um, I couldn't, I had come in here and I had taken the booze out of me and the drugs and I had replaced it with nothing. I didn't have a higher power. I didn't have the steps. All I was full of was fear and anger and arrogance and self-righteousness. And um, I was afraid, you know, part of the reason that I did the steps that way and part of the reason that I had a sponsor in a coma was because I was afraid the steps weren't going to work for me. Um, I was also kind of afraid that the steps would work for me. I wasn't sure that I could handle that. Um, but mostly I was afraid that the steps weren't going to work for me. And um, and what happened was I decided to kill myself, and I went to a meeting on a Friday night. I was going to kill myself on Saturday. And, and I didn't go to that meeting so that somebody would say something that was going to save my life. I went to that meeting that night. Um, because I was angry and resentful, and um, because I wanted to make sure that you all felt really bad the next day when you heard that I was dead. And um, and I stood in the back of that room, and I stood there like um, like alcoholics who are not working the steps and not working the program and, and not in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous are going to be. I stood there with my arms crossed with that look that we can get, the thin lips, very angry, narrow eyes. No one came near me. Made me even angrier. And um, so I started to storm out of the room, and, and on my way out, somebody grabbed me, and, and he pushed me up against the car, and he said, you know, Penny, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to die. He didn't tell me I was going to get drunk, and he didn't tell me I was going to get loaded. He told me I was going to die. And um, 
I looked at him as only an alcoholic woman who was a bar drinker can do, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I got in my car, and I cried all the way home, and I didn't kill myself the next day just to prove that he was wrong. <laughs> and um, and shortly after that, God put a woman in my life from Southern California. Her name was Kay. And, um, and Kay believed that uh, recovery from the disease of alcoholism comes through the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And I didn't know that when Kay moved into my home for a short period of time. I thought Kay was a whole new audience for everything that had happened to me. And so I started sharing her with her my terrible tale of woe. And I paused to take a breath, and Kay looked at me, and she said, Penny, that's interesting information. Problem is, you're an alcoholic, and you haven't worked the steps. And it was clear that she didn't really understand what had happened to me. So I told her more of my story. And um, when I paused to take a breath, Kay said, Penny, that's interesting information. Problem is, you're an alcoholic, and you haven't worked the steps. Obviously, this woman is not listening, because I have a lot of problems. And so I started to tell her more, and no matter what I said, Kay's response was, Penny, that's interesting information, but you are an alcoholic, and you have not worked the steps. So I worked the steps to prove they wouldn't work for me. And um, and what I know today is that the steps don't know who's working them, the steps just work. The steps don't know how many times I've worked them before, the steps just work. And the steps don't know why I'm working them. The steps just work. The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous work. Now, before Kay left to come back to the mainland, she strongly recommended that I find a sponsor that was active in going to meetings. I don't know why she felt that way. But she helped me find one. I think she didn't trust me. Um, and the, the woman that became my sponsor um, believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism is is comes about through working the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And um, that woman is still a part of my life today. Um, I I uh, communicate with her by email. She lives in Las Vegas now, and we're in touch with each other uh, fairly frequently. And and what she did for me was she took me through the steps using the big book. And um, it's generally the way that I, I take my sponsors through the steps. She took me... She had me read um, up through chapter 3, and, and we talked about what I read. And, and then when we got to chapter 3, that's when we did the first step. And she said that she uses chapter 3 for the first step because it says in that second paragraph that we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. And um, we used chapter 3 for that first step. And she helped me to look at my powerlessness and the unmanageability. And, and then we used chapter 4 for my second step. And she talked to me about my higher power and, again, that disease of perception. You know, I, my brother and I went to the same school growing up. We went to the same church growing up. We went to the same catechism. We were taught by the same nuns. We had the same pastor. And I heard about a punishing God, and my brother didn't. My brother has a great relationship with his higher power. He has never had to go through what I have had to go through to get back to having a relationship with God. And so what I know today is that it wasn't about God, it was about me. And that when we read that chapter 4, that she helped me to get through some of that. But even at that, I was still so afraid that if God knew what I had done, that he would not like me. 
And um, when we got to the third step prayer, when I did that third step prayer, I did it to a borrowed God. She let me use her God. I didn't even have a God the first time I did the third step prayer. And um, and I did the steps. The first time I went through the steps, I did them with that borrowed God. And he's a great God. If you're in here and, and you, um, you're struggling with a, a relationship with a higher power, um, my God would, would love to help you. Um, if you're hiding from God, I just want to tell you that AA is not necessarily a good place to hide. <laughs> he shows up at every meeting I've been to. We got to the fourth step, and um, and one of the things that she did with me was she um, she showed me in the fourth step. Well, she showed me that line on page 66 that can conclude where others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. She showed me that there was a fourth column. But what she also showed me was that in five different places in the fourth step, it talks about prayer, that it tells us to pray. In two places, it says it outright, and in the three other places, it says we ask God, and that where it says we ask God, but that's prayer. And again, I did this the first time with a borrowed God. But what she did with me was she gave me that foundation that today I still use today with 20 years sober, that when I do a fourth step today, I still do it in partnership with my higher power. And the power that that gives me to be able to be honest and look at myself and to be able to see my part in it. And and also to know that it's just that I'm just not that good at being that bad. One of the things that I think is interesting when I study the big book is that there's one prayer in the resentment portion and one prayer in the fear portion and three prayers in the sex portion. It's just an observation, not judging, just reporting. And then we sat down and did the fifth step. And, and again, you know, there's my look good. And, and are people going to like me if they know what I'm really like? Are you really going to let me stay here? And I sat down and I did my fifth step with her. And she shared part of her fifth step with me. And um, and she told me I wasn't that good at being that bad. And, and she showed me in the fifth step, one of the things that I love about what, what was the people that surrounded me in my early sobriety is that, you know, in the area where I live, and we have a lot of people talking about the promises in the big book on page 83 and 84. What my sponsor did for me was she showed me that there's promises from the very first page of the book. And that there's promises in Bill's story. And there's promises in every single step. And the biggest promises she gave me was when we went to the fifth step and she said, and she showed me the promises on page 75 where it says, once we have taken the step with holding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. Now, I don't know about you, but when I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't look the world in the eye. I looked at the tops of my shoes. When I wanted to be outgoing, I looked at the tops of your shoes. Um, I couldn't eat dry. And you know what? I get to stand up here this evening as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I get to look around this room, and I can meet the eyes of anybody in this room. And I can do that because today I have a loving God that loves me exactly for who and what I am. And I know I'm not perfect. And I know that that I haven't done the program perfectly. And I know that I don't live life perfectly. But today what I have is I have these steps to guide me. You know, it says in step 12 that 
and we practice these principles in all our affairs. And we call them principles because they work every time. If they didn't work every time, we just call them good ideas. You know? And they work. And the steps don't know why I'm working. I um, I did the fifth step and I got on to six and seven. And, and uh, I again, you know, here I thought, how hard can they be? They're one paragraph each. And what I what I know today is that I mostly live on six and seven. And I mostly live there because of one word. Now. That's what six and seven says. Oh, we are now ready. I am now willing. I pray that you now remove. Not yesterday and not tomorrow. I have to do it right now. I um we got up at, at four o'clock this morning to fly out here and, and um and B picked us up at the airport and, and we got here to the hotel and had the opportunity to chat with some friends and and I uh, went up to the up to our room and um I got to call my sponsor and talk with her for a while and and I gotta tell you, since I got off the phone with my sponsor, I've been talking to God a lot. Right now. <laughs> right now. You know, and I've I've been turning it over. Um I really believe that um that if I stand up here and tell you I'm not nervous, that I'll lie about other things too. And um and I have to ask God to give me the words to carry his message, not my ego. Because I can start to believe my own pressure. And um, and if I do that, I'm in a lot of trouble. And um, and I'm really grateful that today I get to be surrounded by wonderful people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor celebrated 34 years last February, and, and she saved my life in the past year, and I know that. And uh, Lana and I have, have both had you know, some, some incredible... Every single one of my sister sponsors has had wonderful, incredible experiences with our sponsor. And, and um and I get to do that today because today I get to live life. You know, I, I went on to eight and, and she helped me to look at my eight step list and, and helped me to see that where there were some that I thought were awful amends to have to make, um, that they weren't going to be that bad and, and where I thought that there were no amends that were going to have to be made that perhaps I had some amends owed. Um and that and she helped me to see what the steps really said. You know, I I had one you know, I had stolen some stuff from this person and sold it, and, and they lived on my way to a meeting, and so what I thought I would do was drop an envelope by their house one night on my way home from a meeting with some money in it and um, a letter of apology, and she asked me to read what the ninth step said, and so I said, well, made direct amends to such people wherever possible. She says, now, what does that say? I said, well, I have to make amends, and I'm going to make amends. I'm going to drop by the envelope and the money and the letter. She said, read it again, and I read it again. She said, what's the second word? <laughs> Correct. And she said, well, that means if they live down the street, you don't send them a letter. You face to face. Wherever possible. You don't do it by mail. You do it at their house. And I went to make amends to this person, and um, when she came to the door, she was screaming at me, and I told her that I was there to make amends. The other thing my sponsor wouldn't let me do was she, I couldn't say, I'm sorry. She said, we all knew what a sorry SOBI was. Um, she said that I had to make amends, that that means I have to make it right. I have to ask, what can I do to make the situation right? And then I couldn't use the excuse that I was drunk. Now, you know, even though she wouldn't let me say those words out loud in my mind, with a lot of those amends, I was like, yeah, but I was drunk. That's fine when you're a newcomer. 
when you got 20 years, it's just because I'm a jerk. Um, and then we went on to, um, to Ken, and she showed me that, that where Ken says when we were wrong assumes that I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to be wrong. It doesn't say if, it says when. And what that gives me is that freedom to be a human being. And what, what the 10, 11, and 12 actually do for me today is the 10th, 11th, and 12th step are the steps that take me into the tradition. Because the steps are what allow me to live between me and God, and the traditions are what allow me to live with you all. Because the traditions are the places where I learn not to take myself too damn seriously. The traditions are the place where I learn that what I am here is a drunk among drunks, a friend among friends, a worker among workers. That I have to take this program into my job as well as into my home, as well as into my meetings. And that I do that with the steps and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we got to the 12th step and... Um, one of the things that I'm incredibly grateful for is that when I was new in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we were doing a lot of 12-step work. We were going out and we were getting people and we were taking them to meetings and we weren't just taking them and dropping them off at detox or the treatment facility. They were taking it out with us. And, um, and I've had the opportunity to do that in early sobriety and I've had that, had the opportunity to do that more recently in the past couple of years. And, uh, I had a, 12-step call um, about a year ago where this woman called and I went and picked her up and friend and I went over and picked her up and I got to tell you, we got to her house and she looked good and she was pretty and she was all, had the makeup was perfect and the nails were done and the clothes were perfect and we went to a women's meeting where most of them were there in jeans and t-shirts and, and she looked good and um, and she held my, clutched my hand through the whole meeting it was like, oh God, I shouldn't have worn a ring tonight and um and she reeked of alcohol. Reeked. And um, after the meeting, another woman came up and gave her a hug and welcomed her back. And then the, the woman who'd just given her a hug turned to me and she says, I think it's bourbon. What do you think? And I said, well, I thought it was Scott. But, you know, I get to do that today. And I get to see. I get to see what's out there. And I get to carry the message. And I get to share what was given to me for free and for fun. And I get to participate in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the people here taught me how to be responsible. They taught me how to pick up my coffee cup and throw it in the trash on my way out the door. They taught me how to pick up a chair and stack it against the wall. They taught me that it's a privilege to be allowed to participate in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They taught me that I have to be respectful of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They taught me that when I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have to be respectful and honor the program. And, you know, I, I have, last summer I was in a meeting in Montana, and a conference in Montana, and there was an old-timers panel, and I love old-timers panels. I love the old-timers of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so grateful for you to be here. Because I know that newcomers are the lifeblood of AA, but I believe that our old-timers are the arteries. And if you guys hadn't been here when I got here, why would I have stayed? And I was sitting in this old-timers meeting up in Montana, and this guy named Whiskey Bill from Tacoma, Washington, stood up. And Whiskey Bill said, I got here the day before I died. And that was my story. You know, and I'm so grateful that when Bill said that, there wasn't somebody sitting next to me trying to tell me a story, or there wasn't somebody sitting behind me trying to tell someone else a story, or getting up to go get a cup of coffee. But I got to hear that. Because I never know 
when I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to hear somebody say something that's going to save my life. And I don't want to be responsible for you not hearing something that's going to save your life. You know, when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I hated myself. I hated who I had become. And my sponsor told me she loved the lady I was going to be. And I had no concept of what that meant. And you know, every once in a while in the time I've been sober, when I reach some kind of a milestone birthday, you know, when you reach the double digits, or, or you know, when you reach the teens, you know, I think, well, you know, what else could happen? You know, life goes on, and, and is this all there is? And, and sure enough, something comes along and throws me, throws me a curve. And, um, and life has been like that for me, and I'm so grateful that when those things have happened, I've stayed centered in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I left the islands when I had two and a half years of sobriety, and I moved to Virginia, and I lived there for a few years, and then I moved out to California. And for 15 years, I worked for a company that sent me all over the country, and I was a consultant. And I got to go to meetings in 30 different states. Um, I had the pleasure of walking into a meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana, and my client was a greeter at the door. That'll remind you the pure God. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had the pleasure to, to to meet people and to run into people that I've only known by email for ten years, and um, and and life has been good and life has been painful. Um, this last October, I celebrated twenty years of sobriety, and and um, and it seemed like within a week, my whole life turned upside down. I, um, there was some stuff that was, that started going on that I just had, had no idea where it came from. And, and there was some stuff that I didn't even know that I had been living in denial, um, for a long time. And I called my sponsor and I told her what was going on. And she said, sound like you're going to have to work the steps, doesn't it? Do a four step. And, um, I wanted to say, but you don't understand. I'm 20 years sober. And she said, work the fourth step. And um, so I um, I got a notebook. Well, actually, I I tried doing the fourth step, but you have to have the right notebook, you know. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was supposed to have dinner with, with a friend of mine one evening, and she said, so did you start that fourth step yet? And I said, no, I didn't get the notebook. But we're going to have dinner over at such and such a place, and it's right by Walmart, and I, you know, I'm going to try and get there early so that I can get the notebook. She said, don't bother, I have one in my backpack for you. Do you need a pen? Um, so I got the notebook and uh, I got the pen <laughs> and I got the big book and I said I tried doing this fourth step and I couldn't do it. And what I discovered, I was I was driving to San Francisco Airport on a Friday afternoon to fly to Okaboji, Iowa for the weekend, and um, and I was talking to God because I couldn't do this fourth step. And this was big stuff. I knew um, I knew that this was really big stuff. And um, and I was talking to God to figure out what was going on and why I couldn't do this fourth step. Because I can tell other people to do a fourth step and and, uh, and I can walk them through it and why can't I do it? And what I realized was I was doing the same thing that I had done when I was new. I was trying to take the step cafeteria style. And I had gone from where I normally live on six and seven back to four and I hadn't gone back to one. And so on the way to the airport, driving to the airport, I did the first three steps and I talked to God and I talked about being powerless and my life being unmanageable. My life is real, man. 
And I, um, I came to believe that he could restore me to sanity. If he could restore me to sanity with my alcoholism, he can restore me to sanity with anything. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of him, no matter what. No matter what's happened as a result of this force death. And I got to San Francisco airport, and my dad has a wonderful sense of humor. My flight was delayed an hour and a half. And in my carry-on luggage, I had um, a notebook, a pen, a big book, and a deck of cards. And I put the cards away, and I started on my fourth step. And um, I wrote all the way from San Francisco to Okoboji. And all the way from San Francisco to Okoboji, it was all about you. It was all about them, and they, and what they did to me, and him, and her, and it. And I got to Okoboji and, and went to the weekend there, and on the flight home, it was still all about everybody else. And an hour out of San Francisco, I wrote the words that it's not about them, it's about me. And I was able to look at my part in it. And I called my sponsor when I got home, and we started on my fifth step, and came to California a couple weeks later, and I finished my fifth step with her, and, and, um, and we did six and seven now, right now. And we talked about eight and nine, and, and we made my amends list, and, uh, and I got started on that. And my life has changed incredibly. I, um, and what I know is that the steps don't know that I'm 20 years old. The steps just work. The steps don't know that I'm a woman. The steps just work. And the gift you have given me, I don't know how you get from being the lady that walked into the, in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in Honolulu, Hawaii, to the woman that gets to stand here this evening with a God that loves me, with friends that love me, a family that loves me, and friends and family that I love today, and that I get to be a participating member of life, not just of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get to be a worker among workers today. And, um, You know, when I when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I um I wanted to die. And um what you did was um you gave me a life worth living. And um and you did that through the twelve steps and the twelve traditions and the big book and sponsorship and friendship and love and acceptance and letting me know that I wasn't that good at being that bad. And um, and today the steps are an integral part of my life. The traditions are an integral part of my life, and um, and I get to participate in life. There's a there's a story in the back of the book that I'd like to read the last part of. Um, it's my favorite story, um, and I'm very grateful that it's going to remain in the fourth edition. It's called The Keys of the Kingdom. The last 20 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I've had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life. But also I've known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and with my AA friends an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by working together, sharing our experiences with one another and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding and love without strings, without obligation. We acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone and never need return again. 
Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. And you turn for a bottle and a hangover. I've been given the keys of the kingdom. And that's what you people gave me. You gave me life and you gave me God. I have a wonderful relationship with my higher power today. I talk to him on a regular basis. Um, I talk to him on the way to the airport and I talk to him on the way home. I remember to say please and I remember to say thank you today because today I know who to thank. And today, I need to thank you. Because you gave me. You gave me life and you gave me God. And I can never repay you. Thank you. God or our high power for giving you that task. And we have a little present for you, too. I need to take off. Um, Those of you who wish to join us, we're going to stand and say the Lord's Prayer.